everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Joe Malicote. I'm the owner of Archery World. Henry Bass here uh, with Archery World as well. And today we're going to talk about uh, site setups in relationship to your uh, indoor target setup, which can apply to outdoors as well. And then we're going to roll into the beginning of probably a never-ending subject, target panic. Uh, so let's uh we recorded an episode last week it got out for just a brief minute and it cut off the audio about halfway through so we just want to re-record this about that so apologize if you got to hear that and then lost that audio at about uh 30 minutes in so hopefully uh we're this won't happen again to us um so henry let's talk about the the site setup, what you're currently using, some of the sites on the market, and then uh, we'll move on from there. So some of the major brands that build target sites out there are going to be Excel, Spot Hog, uh, CBE, uh, C- or Shibuya, some of these other companies, and they're all really good sites. Cartel's another one. They're all really good sites. Uh you know, the differences between one site versus another is pretty minimal as far as, you know, what you get. Uh, it's just kind of the different features and, and each company kind of has their own little blurb about what they think is better about their stuff than others. Uh, personally, I'm shooting the, the Excel sites, the uh, Carbon Achieve XP. It is their new one that they've had for the last couple. Well, I, I say new. They've had it for the last couple years. Uh with the carbon rod and, and I, I shoot the six inch bar version uh, for a scope setup. I'm running a, the CBE housing, the small vented housing with a two power scope. Uh, that's just my indoor setup outdoors. I run the, the achieve 31 or 35 millimeter scope housing and then uh, a four power for that. Yeah. Okay. So, the reason that their bar links are a big deal when it comes to a lot of people's perception about how the, the site is going to be made and how you're going to shoot because it has an extended bar on it. Um, I know we've talked about this a lot, and let's go into uh, why they make the bars as long as they do, what the purpose of it is, how it can be used to help you tune the bow, which a lot of people don't understand. They can You can use that, that site radius to help you not only achieve the – the perspective you want to see for your scope and peep relationship, but you can also use it in a way that it affects how the bow torque tunes. So let's, I know indoors you do it uh, with a little less need for it than you do for outdoors, but how do you use that? So I I keep mine run pretty, you know, in just, that's how I've always had it. It doesn't torque tune there, but I don't necessarily personally torque tune my bows and, um, I know the farther out you get, the less yardage you get. So these guys that are putting them on their bows, thinking that extending them out all the way is going to be more accurate and this and that, that is kind of false information. It's just information that somebody put out there that wanted to be relevant at the time and, and created a following based off of that. But, um, you know, the way you're going to be more accurate is by torque tuning your bow and getting that set up correctly versus just putting it out there just because you you saw some guy on YouTube doing it and, and it looked cool. Um, you know, we, we started selling a lot of those extended bars in the shop, right? And it, it's all these hunter guys think that the farther out it is, 
that the better it's going to be. Well, I, I use one of those so that I can pull my side off and transport for my hunting bow for my target bow. Uh, same thing. It, if they made a fixed mount target side, I'd probably use it, but it's just easier for me to transport it by taking that, that extension bar out. Now, when we're talking about torque tuning, right, we talked a little bit about moving the rest back and forth. Well, that same thing with the sight. When you're torque tuning, if you run out of rest adjustment, well, then you can start moving your, your sight back in and out, and it has the same effect as doing the rest. Uh, the rest is a little bit more critical than the sight as far as getting it fine-tuned, but most of the time you're going to have your rest kicked back all the way for most people, and then really the fine-tune is going to be in the sight getting that the the rest of the way. Yep. Well, and I think what you're getting at is, you know, the the misconception is is the sight, the longer the sight radius is, the better it is because the further apart those two points get, um, you're creating a straight line. It's easier to see if you were building a row of fences. If you had two fence posts that were eight inches apart, it's harder to tell that straight line than if they were 100 yards apart if you stood down and needed to put one more line out or one more post down the row. Right. The, the difference is, is you're on an unstable platform and you're shaking and moving and trying to hold something that's less than a third of a uh, degree of angle, way, way under a third of a degree of angle to hit a 10 ring at 20 yards. Uh, so there's a relationship on what you need the dot to look like, what you need the scope housing to look like in your sight picture versus that extending it all the way out and thinking that more is better, you know, as we talk about a lot. Um, right. The power comes into play too. Um, and if you're shooting outdoors and you start extending your bar all the way out, there's a lot of people with the draw lengths and speed of their bow that just can't reach past 80 to 90 yards uh, because their sight radius still, uh, the further out it goes, the more degrees um, of movement that thing has to have to reach a one degree at the top and you know 12 degrees at the bottom let's say if you're shooting 80 yards or 100 yards and when it's in further that fits inside of that movement of the scope uh, vertical bar better um, yep. the power now um, I know you shoot a two power for the same reason I shoot a three power which is you see less power and your target doesn't appear as close but you don't see the movement either. And power isn't, it's how many times closer that target appears to you. So what happens is it may, a two power makes it appear twice as close to you, but you see twice the amount of movement. So um, that's exactly why you shoot a two power indoor, isn't it? Yeah, my, my biggest thing is I, I got some target panic trying to shoot the higher poundage scopes. And with going towards the two power, it helped me kind of, control it and slow it down um and obviously i i've, I've kind of fixed it since then but i still get the urge even with a two power to to want to hammer the trigger or, or my release or whatever and and so it just it it keeps it more at bay for me and allows me to kind of concentrate more without seeing all that movement and putting my focus back onto my sight it allows me to focus more on my release more on your shot execution yeah yep well, and that's so you could probably put a four or six power in there and shoot a bunch of 30x games like you know you can, but eventually that would probably catch up to you, is what yep. you're afraid of. So, and that's the same thing with me running high power indoors, because I already move a lot, anyways, is what I feel like. And so, I use if I use a four or a six power indoors, it's to kind of like 
fine tune my the movement that I do see and get it to be the least amount of movement I can and then I switch to a three power because then I feel even more stable with uh, working on stabilization under high power makes a big difference to me when I switch to a three power so it makes my bow feel even more stable when I get to the power I see even less movement with right if you can hold a, a four or five or a six power even even I know guys that shoot eight powers if you can hold that steady when you go to that lower power the only thing is, is it kind of looks like that target's a little bit farther away once you get used to that. And then, you know, sometimes it can create problems with, with shot process. But, I mean, you, you're you used to scopes with variable powers and stuff like that. So you're kind of used to that. So it ends up working out pretty good in that aspect. Yeah, and I don't do it very long either. But, I mean, maybe a week at, or less, you know, not a lot of arrows going through it. Just more like drawing back and doing, you know, the the full back tension and getting a feel of the movement of it and then try to switch back over as fast as I can so I'm not trying to get used to a six power. I'm just using it to, to steady my setup. Right. Um, but uh, now I know a lot of people talk about this, and I know we um, have been getting comments about trying to cover this. As we've talked about how you can move a sight in or out to help torque tune the bow, uh, you can also uh, use, move the bow sight in or out to um, – change the perspective of the peep size versus the um, the size of the housing that you're using. And you said you use a 31, uh, 35 or 31, I can't recall, uh, from uh, millimeter scope housing. I use a 25. So you must, if you're using an XL, it must be a 25 or a 35. Um, so I use a 25, the AV25. I like the smaller scope ring. And the reason I like it bec is because I run my scope in further to me, um, it it becomes bigger, right? So the closer right. it is to me, the bigger the scope looks. And when I try to run a 35, I can't run a peep that I like to make it circle that as much as I want. So I run the 25 and then it fits around it as if I had a 35 extended out. Right. And so that's where my brain goes with it is, is I like to see around the scope a little bit and see the whole ring because I know I misalign my sight towards the end of my shot process more than I should, especially if I lag on shot, uh, if my pace is slow. Um, and because of that, I catch myself misaligning a little faster when I run that 25 at a certain distance from my sight because that's a, a little problem I've been working on for a couple of years, but it don't go away because I want it to. It goes away because you put time in. Right. Uh, so um, if we go into you, – you mentioned it before. Um, shot process is – it, when we talk about the shot process, 99% of the time we're talking about the mental aspects on your pace, your mental, your mental game, how that kind of ties into everything that you do is the shot process. So your setup can be dealt with. That's why you can pick up just about anybody's bow and shoot good with it with a couple of small adjustments because your shot process is so sound. And that's what I think separates a lot of pros and amateurs is their shot process for pros are considered very, very fast-paced. Uh, because they understand how pressure affects them and then that the shot isn't going to align better if you hold for 10 more seconds um yeah. it usually deteriorates and if you look at on this pro circuit and i know uh chance bobuff is known to be one of the slower pro staff shooters of any pro and he had a long shot press for a long time and I, i've heard podcasts of him talking about speeding that up for certain reasons just like you talked about before um how your pace needs to be a certain pace to be successful right. going to that. So 
so I know he sped up his shot just because they went from two two minutes and thirty seconds to two minutes, so he was kind of forced to. Um, he, he's probably the slowest shot out of e, even any amateur I've ever seen. Um, he the dude just aims forever and ever and ever, and you could probably eat a sandwich or or drink a a pop in the time frame that it takes him to pull back and shoot an arrow. Like he's just, but he's very methodical about everything. Me on the other side, I. I shoot a lot of stabilizer weight, and so it, for me, the longer I'm at full draw, the faster I deteriorate, the less shot, less good shots over the course of the day that I feel like I can make. Um, ideally, I don't. Now I've slowed up quite a bit from when I was at the top of my my game, but back then, I mean, I remember years in Vegas, I was getting three shots off in under a minute, and walking off the line. I could do that now, but it, it feels like I'm pushing it. Um, you know, now I'm shooting about a minute and 15 to a minute and 20. It, it's kind of about my average for three shots now. But, you know, the, typically the faster you can get going without altering it, the better off you're going to be anyways, just because, like you said, the shorter amount of time you're aimed in that target, the less likely you are to make a mistake and have something alter that shot or alter that, you know. But it's a double-edged sword. You don't want to rush it, and then you start getting into this whole target panic theme because now you're pushing buttons or you're you're powering through stuff or you're cranking through th things and things like that to where it. So it's it, it's a it's a fine line that you got to cross, right? It, it's and For so sure. that's that's kind of always been my thought process on it. Those shoot as fast as you're mindset will allow you right and then so this is kind of this is we're talking about this to lead into a little bit of target panic and we're going to talk about specifically i know uh, we your your target panic that you had when you were coming up and becoming a pro and then um how you dealt with that and all the little tricks that everybody was trying to feed you that was going to take care of it and solve the all the problems of the world with target panic and how much is hype and how much is not is a that's a fine line because some of it works for people based off their mental conditioning based off of what they're willing to accept and based off of how it works for them so i know you know there's several there's dozens of ways to cure target panic and then you've you like you talked about before you've said you've shot several releases downrange on one day so oh yeah i cra i cracked a, a riser one day launching launching releases into the back of the riser and cracked a Hoyt it was like a I believe it was like a 2008 Hoyt Ultra Tech that I bought off of a guy that is like the first target bow that I had ever bought and thought it was the neatest thing since sliced bread and and I cracked it and then I was forced to go buy a new bow so um you know like you said there there are a million different methods for target panic and and each person has to find the individual thing that's going to help them for me Blank Bell was the exact opposite of that. Everybody wants to push Blank Bell down your throat, and they think that Blank Bell is the gospel. I feel like it's the exact opposite. I feel like Blank Bell feeds the demons because you're not you're, – you're, you're, they call it target panic for a reason. It's not called Blank Bell panic. It's target panic. Your problem is between you and the target. The only way that you're going to – I feel like – the only way that you're going to fix that is by jumping feet first and dealing with the target. And so, like, for me personally, 
uh, the best tools that I felt like ever came out into existence was the Carter Evolution. I think without that, I would have stopped shooting 10, 20, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I would have just been done because that that tool, I, I know people claim that it's inconsistent, but I and I'm not going to argue and say that it is or it isn't because that's a whole nother uh, deal and people are going to believe what they want to believe. But I feel like the reason why it's inconsistent is the inconsistencies in forms. And so as you rotate it one way or another, it does increase or decrease the poundage. Now, if you pull it back the same way every time, that's where I feel like it's consistent. Well, it's inconsistent because... Well, it's exposing a difference in the shooter. Yeah, right. it's, it's exposing your form flaws, mm -hmm. right? And so if you got flaws, that release is going to put them out there. And, and whether you take it that way or not, well, that's on you. That's not on the release. So um, I know that release kind of got a bad rep because of that. And people kind of went towards the Carter element. Well, I just think that it's an easier release to actuate. And it's not as finicky as that evolution. But regardless, you know, either way about it, they're both great releases. They both kind of... At the end of the day, the goal's the same thing. But for me, I, I needed that Carter Evolution because I launched a couple thousand dollars worth of releases downrange one day at a club called Datus and, and broke every single one of them. There's like 15 Carters in there um, or, or 20 Carters or something like that in this bag of, bag of releases that I broke. So for me... My, my biggest thing was I needed to stop listening to everybody and I needed to devote the time by myself to go down to the range. Well, again, you know, I, I could shoot a hundred perfect shots in a row with a back tension. As soon as I put that target back up there, now I started going back into the same thing that I was doing before. I had a fear of that target and so I couldn't get my pin on the target. I mean, as soon as I'd look through my peep, I had it so bad, as soon as I'd look through my peep, I could be aimed at the ceiling and I'd shoot my arrow. <laughs> yeah. Well, the target, blank belling, I want to mention this before we move on, blank belling or shooting a blind bell, whatever you want to call it, it's kind of like the equivalent of every time somebody says, what kind of arrow do I need? I'm going to hunt elk. Oh, you need 27% FOC. So blank belling's the default answer to curing target panic, like FOC is the default answer to uh, something. It's just a way to keep a people relevant on talking about it and it's an easy conversation because it worked for them maybe right right and, and, and not to say that you can't cure some stuff with blank bell but i don't think blank bell is the answer not to right not to everyone because there's a lot of people that i've coached that that blank belling didn't do anything it's like you said they could shoot a really good or perfect shot when they blank bell because they didn't have anything going on in their mind their mind process wasn't sped up and and they could close their eyes stand at three yards from the bell and let that perfect execution happen but then when they aimed at a target again, it was still there. So uh, some people need to shoot at a target with a huge, huge dot on it at three yards. You know, like an right. indoor target at three yards is going to look really big. It's hard to aim outside of like a red, yellow ring, not to mention if you move a lot, maybe the red ring. But you're going to hit it more, and you're going to feel like you can aim consistently, and then you learn to push that back. Is it, that how it, you cured it a little bit, or what did you do? Yeah, so, I mean— I, I, so kind of going back to the blank bell a little bit, I do think that some arrows on blank bell are needed just to build confidence that you can shoot a good release, right? But I think once you have that confidence instilled that you know how to shoot the release, then I think that's when you need to go into a process of actually eliminating the target panic. And, and like you said, you know, some guys go up close and this and that. That's exactly what I did is I started at five yards, 
um, shot at a target. And any time that I felt like I wanted to punch it or I had any negative thought, I let down. And that's a hard thing for people to do. And it is. And, and eat. And then if I made a bad shot, I stayed at five yards. So basically what I did is I, I waited until, and, and this is, I, each time I moved back five yards, but how I did it is I forced myself. I needed 30 good shots. I wanted 30 good shots at aiming at a target. Once I got my 30 good shots, I'd move back five yards. So I went from five to 10 yards. At 10 yards, if I had 30 good shots, then I'd move on to 15. Now, I can tell you right now, I, I spent a lot of time staying at 10 yards because how it worked, and this was just discipline on my side, is if I made a bad shot at 10 yards and or I, I felt like I wanted to punch, I would restart the whole process again and start back at five. So I drug it out as long as I possibly could and punished myself, which a lot of people are scared to do. A lot of people don't want to punish themselves. And it's kind of just the world that we're growing up in these days. And But I just knew that if I wanted to be better, I needed to do something. I needed to fix me. And the only way to fix me is the same way that, you know, like when you're younger and your mom bakes cookies and, and you go and steal one and she smacks your butt or, or punishes you because she said no. Well, that I, I kind of just took that same concept. Of, I, I needed to don't reward yourself for doing something wrong. Yeah. And, and that's the problem is I, I don't I'm not a reward type of person. I, I want to know what I do wrong. And so that was the thing is so once I got back to 20 yards, I forced myself to shoot. 30 good arrows if i screwed up or or made a mistake then guess what i went back down to 10 five yards again and i did that and it took me about four months of doing that nothing but that and, and we do that when we're helping people in the shop too right. exactly that so that that's you know that strategy works with a lot of people is don't reward yourself for doing something wrong so if you're not willing to let down and you're willing to take a poor shot and it costs you that uh, that spot or that hitting that mark then you should try to figure out a way to do that. Now, if you look at any other sport on the planet, and even let's take something that more people are even familiar with. I, I'm not this guy, but video games. In today's world, Xbox and Call of Duty and everything else on the market, um, imagine if you're playing one of these first-person shooter games and you're running through saving the world and doing all these missions, and then when you got killed, it sent you back to the beginning of the game instead of to that beginning of that stage. It's kind of a me now mentality that we're growing up in is because there's no punishment. The punishment is, is you just go back to the little section that you were in. So imagine if you were, you know, three quarters of the way through the possibility of that game and it, and it took you six months to get there. And then if you got killed, you had to go back to the very beginning. You would probably not be the hero and run out and throw 12 grenades and, you know, try to shoot all the, you know, 40 bad guys that are all shooting at you you'd probably think about that different. <laughs> right. Or you would just stop. And that's the same thing with a lot of people do with archery is because they get that target panic. They don't want to deal with it or they don't want to deal with it the correct way. And so they just stop shooting. And, you know, that's the thing is it just takes work. It's just like anything. The only way to get good at anything is by practice. Same with video games, this, that, the other. Uh, riding a bike. You don't you don't learn how to ride a bike overnight. It takes a little bit of practice first you got to start out with the training wheels and then you got to take those off and then you got to you know just learn how to keep pedaling and keep your balance and it's same thing with shooting 
you know, you have to, you have to work through that shot process. So the whole time that I was dealing with my target panic, it, it forced me to develop a shot process. And, you know, that's, that's what a lot of people are lacking. And I think that's why it's easy to get into the target panic is because now your mind's so hyper-focused on that target when realistically you need to be focused on the release, not the target. You know, you, you can you can watch the aim and watch the pin float and do this and that, but you need to be worrying about the stuff that can move, the thing that you can control more than anything. You can't really control the aim. Uh, uh, people can only aim as good as their ability to aim, right? right but you, you, can, you can control the release a lot better, and that's not got anything to do with ability. That's all moving of a hand or doing something. That's all, that's all a mindset. So the aim is one thing. Uh, that's just your ability to aim, how steady of a person you are, and that can be contributed to a, a million different things. But the one thing that I know that I can physically control each and every shot is I can control my release of when it's going to fire, when it's not going to fire, this, that, the other, and that's what you primarily need to focus on. Well, and so talking about that mental spot, when you're aiming and you're looking at your target and you're focused on, you think you're focused on the backhand, you know, your release hand, whether it's a button or a hinge or whatever you're shooting, um, and you see that dot floating around and wiggling and jiggling and all of a sudden it comes way off a target, usually there's a reason. And the reason it usually comes way off target is, is you've given up some back tension. You've usually not pulled uh, or something to that nature. So what that causes is an interruption in your shot cycle and then you start to focus on trying to get it back in the middle and you usually lose focus on what you're talking about. You should stay focused on, which is your release hand. That pulling back and keeping that tension at the same tension it was and keeping the movement going if, if you know you're used to seeing movement to begin with. Uh, so how do you talk yourself into continuing to add pressure to your back or move the release or whatever you want to do. Tell us about your mental aspect on what you feel like the release is doing in your hand and how you're causing it to do it. So I shoot my release different than, than a lot of people that shoot back tensions. Back tension means absolutely nothing. The only thing you use back tension for is keeping back at full draw. A true back tension release is actually a hinge. A back tension release would be like an evolution or an element because you do actually have to use back tension and keep consistent tension on that release to get it to, to actuate. With a hinge, that, that has to move. At some point in time, your hand has to do something to move. So what I was always taught growing up was relax the index finger and that's how, you know, just relax your index finger as you're pulling. So that's kind of still the same shot style that I have. I just shoot it more of like a relaxed trigger now it so much, or you know, as much more so than an actual back tension style. So I just, I, I primarily focus on pulling back and keeping pulled as hard as I can. Like I try to, I try to rip the axles off of my bow. Now, whether it looks like that or not, that might be a different story, but I feel like when I'm at full draw, I'm ready to start bending the axles. And uh, so I'm just focusing on keeping pulled back, keeping tension. And then I kind of will go back a little bit to my finger and just go, okay, it's in the middle. I can start relaxing a little bit more. Oh, you know, it's, it's out. I'll, I'll increase tension a little bit. Oh, it's in the middle. And then 
eventually enough of that, then that release fires. Um, now, the quicker that I shot, I wasn't so focused on my release. When I was shooting quick, I was more worried about keeping tension than I was release because once I got that aimed, it, it was probably in the target for three to five seconds and it was gone every time. Uh, that doesn't give you a whole lot of time to think. Three seconds, it can be a lot and it can also be not a whole lot of time, right? And so in that three seconds, in that shot process, my old shot process, it was get the pin in the middle, get it to fire. And how I got it to fire was keep pulling. Well, what did that keep pulling do? It caused that release to rotate and fire. Now, the other thing is part of the reason why my shot's so quick is I shoot a really light release. A lot of people yeah. will punch themselves in the face well, trying yeah. to shoot my release. Let me second that. He shoots a hot release for sure. So if you can get it back, he shoots a click, a click, thank goodness, because if you can draw his release without it clicking and shooting the first time you ever pick it up, then you're doing good. So if you're ever going to borrow a back tension release from Henry to see what they feel like, one, don't. I would suggest you don't borrow his. Two, I would suggest that you do it at two yards because you're going to shoot it while you're drawing it back. And three, probably most important, I wouldn't draw it back at your face, you know, <laughs> so because we're going to know you borrowed his release. So I shoot a hot release, but yours is hotter than mine to the point where I'm afraid that there ain't even enough metal there to hold it there. You know, yours is so hot. So I can shoot it, but, man, it takes me, I bet, five or six draws before I even feel like I can focus on getting an anchor and looking through the peep, you know, with yours. But, of course, when it's all about how a person holds it. So, like you're saying, on a back tension release, it's about the angle the release is at when it's going to fall apart. It's a sear that literally falls off the edge of a cliff, you know, right. the other piece of metal. So, because you have your hand, you must have your hand more cocked, but it, even though it doesn't look like it, it's just, it just looks like everyone else's, your hand's got to be more cocked or you'd be drawn the same way. So everyone else has gotten used to different ergonomics in the way they draw the release. They try yours and they shoot it during the draw. Right. Um, now, that being said, there's some people that have a really, really heavy set back tension release and they have a, uh, I can pick it up and I can't even, I start sweating and wondering if I should let down, you know, for five minutes of drawing it, trying to make it shoot. Right. Um, so everybody likes what they like. That's why they're adjustable. But the reason we're talking about this is because how it can contribute or in, help to target panic or help you get rid of it is important. So um, blank belling for me when I'm executing a shot is a way to minimize um, my shot time, you know, so uh, that I can get into a pace that helps me get in, uh, teach myself it's okay to see some movement. Even though I'm shooting a blank bell so close I can't aim, I'm closing my eyes a lot of times. It's to get a feel for that. Like, uh, And I don't use it to cure target panic. I use it to kind of keep it subdued in my mind uh, because it can be there for everybody at some point. If you've ever punched a trigger once, that's target panic, no matter how you shoot. So when I do the, um, the blank bell, my pace is faster because I feel more confident. And then when I go to a bet or to a target, um, I can usually maintain that pace a little bit better, and it doesn't fluctuate as much from shot to shot. And I know I know you, and I watch a lot of other pros shoot at a really consistent pace, and that pace is fast. But it's because of the experience you've got, knowing that it's not going to get better the longer you hold. Right. Everybody thinks it's going to get better, 
It does not. I, I can tell you that much right now is it starts to deteriorate. And that's when you start getting those weird random misses thinking, man, that thing was in the middle. Well, no, it wasn't. Or something wasn't quite right. You know, your shoulder starts rising and now uh, you're inducing torque and things like that that you didn't have before. And there's there's a lot of variables to it. But like you said, I, I think Blank Bell has it has its purpose. And I think that purpose is just instilling confidence in the fact that you can control your shot. And that's that's more or less the only purpose that Blank Bell has is, but, you know, like a lot of people will just say, well, Blank Bell, a thousand arrows. Well, at, at some point in time, you're not doing anything for yourself. You need to fo focus on a target and fix that. And you know that that's that's the only thing that I found and that I, I've tried that with a lot of people and, and that method works pretty good as far as you know getting them to actually start actuating the release and and figuring stuff out so and but, well and it helps people what we what I've used it for is is it can help them feel what follow-throughs about because yep. sometimes when they're aiming at a target, they don't realize they have target panic, but you watch them and their follow throughs not there and they've cheated the release in some way. And uh, you can tell they don't have enough follow through because they decide of when to shoot instead of letting it happen. Um, so that reward system we were talking about, like you staying at three or four yards and or five yards and shooting up close until you shot that perfect set of arrows, you didn't move yourself back. We've done that with target panic, uh, or to help cure target panic, shoot three good t shots at a blank bell, and then move over to a 10-yard or a 20-yard bell, too. And if you don't feel the same, and it wasn't as perfect of a shot, not where it landed, but how clean the shot was, then go back to the blank bell a little bit. So I know that's helped a lot of people, because if they they mess up and they can admit it to themselves that they punched that one again a little bit, or they kind of got antsy with it, they go back to the blank bell until they can do that. So that has helped some people. Another thing is, is uh, the a lot, some people that we've helped have just been, it's what you described that you've done too, which is just draw, aim at a target and let down. Draw, aim at a target and let down without firing. Yep. Um, that helps a lot of people too, cause they, it's like you said, you look through your peep, you shoot the ceiling, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and what that does is just, again, that's another kind of confidence deal. If you've got the control to aim at a target and let down, you've got the control to be able to shoot a good shot. And that was kind of Chance Bobeff's take it at uh, Target Panic, as I've talked to him a little bit about it uh, before I was really shooting good or anything like that. And uh, I know he's gone to a couple of tournaments, paid entry fees, and never fired an arrow. Went up to the line, pulled back, let down. Loaded another arrow, pulled it back, aimed, let it down. And he did that for two or three tournaments. And, you know, that, that helped him cure his target panic. And I was almost to that point of doing it, but this was prior to knowing Chance when I, I kind of cured, or not necessarily cured it. I don't think you ever can 100% cure target panic because it's always going to be there. It's just how you control it. And so the thing it, for me is, you know, before I knew all those guys, Chances and, and Levi's and, and Jesse Broadwaters and stuff like that, and before I could ask them questions personally, I, I figured it out on my own. And the biggest thing was is 
everybody kind of wants to be a coach when you go down to the range or the club or this or that. But really, at the end of the day, the only one that can fix those problems are you. And, and you got to figure out what works best for you. It doesn't mean that you can't take suggestions and, or ask questions because everybody's going to have a little different process of doing it. I know there's guys here in the state that just are uh, blank bell, tried and true, but they're state champions. Yeah, state champions, <laughs> and you know that's all that they'll be because there there's different aspects that it takes to be to that next level, and you know there there's 51 state champions for 50 state champions, but there's only one Vegas winner every year right in the pro division there's only one pro or amateur vegas winner there's only one national champion and so if it it, it all depends on your goals too and how far you want to take it for me my goal was i was a 17 year old boy or 18 year old boy single didn't really have a whole lot to do uh, except work work a job and my aspirations were to make u.s teams well once i started making u.s teams well then my my goals got bigger. I wanted to win Reading. Well, I I did that once. Wasn't the best decision to go win that tournament, but you know <laughs> no. I, that's another story. Yeah, we'll have to talk um, about that one another time. You know, but like I I still have a goal. I want to win Vegas. The best I've ever done is fifth, and taking fifth at Vegas is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. I I would say that that was harder than winning Reading, and. The whole reason why is once you're in a shoot-off, and I, I've made it to the shoot-off three times, and the the hardest thing in that shoot-off is not looking up into the bleachers or figuring any of that stuff out. The third time that I made it, I just completely zoned out. I stayed to myself, just did my own thing, and it worked. But I could have I done better. Um you know, I've, I've made the shoot-off at the Indoor Nationals a couple of times. I think like four or five times. And same thing there. It Anytime you're in a shoot-off, you just have to it, – it, 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 your mindset changes. And you almost have to make a couple of them just to mess up just to, so that you can walk yourself through the next ones. Um, I'm not the person that gets lucky and goes and wins a shoot the first time that I go, go shoot it or go – you know, I, I'm not oblivious to things. And so I have to do things really the hard way, like the year that I won Reading. I shouldn't have won it, but it was a goal of mine to win it, and I did, but I just didn't do it the legal way. And so, I mean, that, that's the thing is I always have to do things the hard way just because that's how my, pro, my, my, my whole process has been ever since I started archery is do everything the hard way. When I went and had target panic, I had it so bad, but I had to get rid of it the hard way. Right, it, there was no easy route for me doing any of this stuff, and so everything I had to work really hard for. Well, yeah, the well, and that's that's the trick is it's just a lot of times people don't want to put in the time. Now, the people that we see excel to, that get from like I just want to get a bow and start shooting to man, I'm hooked on this to, and and you see the potential in them to be, and we have that locally in the Northwest all the time. They really excel fast at it, and they get to where you would say. If they can handle the pressure, they could probably turn pro. And there's people in the Northwest all over the place that can do that. Um, 
usually those people put the most time into the shooting and into the breaking down the process because they've got the time to do it. They don't have a regular job. They're either in college or they're in between jobs or they're laid off or, and, or they just graduated high school and they don't know what they want to do with themselves and they've got all this spare time and instead of sitting on the couch or, you know, going out and, and uh, doing whatever, they, they decide to take up archery. And that sounds like that's similar to you. And when you became, um, started to excel in the sport, you, you had a time frame in your life where you could dedicate the time it took and you made it a personal goal. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I bet I spent 16 hours a day shooting my bow. Um, you know, but that's that's the work that a lot of people don't see, you know, and I, I hear it now, like at the range and stuff like that. And I don't practice as much now as I used to, but I hear guys say, oh, man, you shoot like once or twice a week and you still shoot 300s. But what a lot of people don't know is like when I when I was coming up, the countless hours that I spent shooting at my house or shooting at the range or shooting at Tim Gillingham's house, I, I bet. There, there was multiple times I, I stayed over at Tim's house because it, I'd look and it was 4 a.m. and I needed to be at work at 7 a.m., you know. And so that's the biggest thing is it has to be something that you want to drive for. It can't be something that somebody else wants, you know. At, at the time, yeah, Tim wanted me to become better, but it was a really big goal of mine to become better. And so it was easy and uh, – you know, I had the facilities to do it. Now I've probably got the best facility of archery that I've got in my entire life. I've got a 300-yard long driveway with a target at the end of it. And then last year I built a 14-target field course. You know how many times I shot that 14-target field course? Once. Ten. <laughs> one, well, one, close. <laughs> one time. And, and put all that work into it and shot it one time. And it doesn't mean that I don't love shooting field because I that's probably my favorite shoot of all, but it's just different different life aspirations and stuff like that. Um, I I love shoot my bow. I'll get up early and go shoot my bow. Or like yesterday, I went in early and to the shop and shot a little bit. Um, or I'll stay late some nights. The other night, I stayed with one of the shop shooters and and shot with him the other night. And and so, you know, I. I still love shooting my bow and enjoy shooting it, and, and now I'm getting ready for the Rushmore Rumble in Yankton, so I'm, I'm shooting at least once or twice a day now, um, but I don't devote uh, 8 to 16 hours a day of just shooting my bow, but at that time I needed to because I needed to know that every time I shot my bow, I was going to shoot a 300 no matter what. Now I occasionally throw in nines, but... As long as you don't throw in nines when it matters, that's all that matters. Yeah, I guess so, right? And that's <laughs> the difference is from somebody that goes to the, all those shoots and all that experiences is that you understand that. And whereas some people shoot 300s a billion times there in practice, but then when they go to the tournament and they can't put one together forever, you know, to save their life. So, um, Well, people put a lot of pressure on shoots, right? Like, mm -hmm. like how I've always looked at Vegas is Vegas is Vegas. It's always going to be there next year. It's just another shoot. And when you can get in that mindset of there's another shoot next weekend, uh, whether it's a local shoot or a big national shoot. I mean, there for a while I was going to 30, 35 national events at, at a time and mixed in a couple internationals a year with that. And so to me, if I screwed up or messed up one weekend, I knew the next weekend I was going to be somewhere else. And so you can't 
take that negativity from one shoot to the next because that's the way that you, that that's how you'll never get past anything is holding on to the past right so for me if i went and had a bad shoot i'd go to the next one with an open mind and go all right i got a chance because i got another weekend you know and that's how you kind of have to look at it and and same with practice practice is the same way if you got a bad practice don't go into the, your next practice session going man i shot really bad last time i hope i shoot better well you just already set yourself up for failure yeah you're opening you, the door for something that you should have closed yeah or leaving it open i guess yeah, the past is in the past let it be if i had a bad session and i'll tell you right now monday i shot my bow horribly and it's not that i scored bad i shot a 299 but i was just making bad shots i i was not focused and or anything like that and it was a bad practice session well guess what when I went and shot my bow, I, I took Tuesday off. Or no, Tuesday we had league. So then I went in and shot league Tuesday night, and I shot a 300. It, it was not the best X count, but I was working on some things. But I hadn't even thought about that bad practice that I had on Monday and just shot my bow on Tuesday. And then, you know, so that that's the thing is you just got to, you know, a lot of people just got to figure out how to let go of the past and just let things go and move on you know and, and go to that next step or, or next shoot or next whatever it is you know next practice session next anything right well with that being said um we're going to wrap up this this podcast but and we hope this has helped to some degree i know we covered sites we covered some target panic we talked about shot process and and things um we are going to move into another section here coming soon. Uh, we want to talk about shot process a little bit um, next week uh, to kind of finish out where this led us, which is the shot process, the timing, the movement of the release, what kind of release works best in certain situations for different types of shooters, and then uh, why multiple shooters or why multiple pros and amateurs have more than one release because they have a job. It's just like a tool in the shed uh, and one thing might not always work best in all situations uh so we hope that you guys are enjoying these podcasts keep giving us some feedback uh, and we hope to see you next week thanks guys and be sure to follow us on facebook and instagram we do keep updates with the shops as far as what's going on in them and uh when the podcasts are getting launched and stuff like that thanks guys mm -hmm.